Welcome back to Seeds and Their People. I'm Chris Bowden Newsom. And I'm Owen Taylor. And today we are going to have um, a treat. This is an interview with um, two of my favorite people in the world, the first people in the world that I actually met. My mother and father, Demelda Bowden and uh, Rufus Newsom. Demelda Bowden Newsom and Rufus Newsom of Greenville, Mississippi. Many of those stories that we're going to hear are stories that I've grown up hearing. Uh, some of them might even involve uh, me. It's personal and it's powerful because these stories are about Mississippi and about the Delta, which is where I'm from, which is where my parents are from, and where at least a couple of my grandparents are from. You will hear some stories uh, about our grandparents, about the land. You're going to hear also, too, stories that might it might be a little confusing to people who are not from a particular black Southern experience, uh, you know. So uh, I ask that you witness respectfully and try to learn something. There will be some stories that hold some powerful and seemingly discordant uh, ideas. But um, we have learned as a part of the Southern experience for people of all colors that we have to walk gracefully with the contradictions. And so there'll be some stories about cotton, um, both beautiful and tragic, and some good times and some hard times, and all of it in the context of uh, my family, who were amongst the Southerners who did not leave the South. Um, so I'm very grateful for those keepers of culture. So I do want to let everyone know that while this is a very exciting interview full of just awesome jewels and, and some knowledge and and really some um, wisdom uh, from their life experience and from the South in general, that there is some background noise because we are in Mississippi and it is hot and uh, there's a fan going. And like many, if not most homes in Mississippi, a fan is going uh, during the warmer, warmer uh, uh, times. And so there will be a little bit of that background noise, but we think that everybody will be able to hear and understand. Uh, and also, too, my house is a, uh, a very well-lived-in house, uh, lots of family. So my parents uh, are the actively um, parenting my uh, nephew and niece. So you will also hear uh, little Jayla and Jacob running around, and they also uh, have a, a couple of spots as well in the interview. And we're gathered for the holidays. So, uh, yes, it is hot in Mississippi at Christmas. <laughs> so um, there will be a fan on in December. There will be kids running through. There may be a dog or a cat. Uh, good times um, in family and at home. So I want to invite everyone uh, to walk with us through a Mississippi Christmas, one Mississippi Christmas uh as my parents and uh, family members tell a little bit about the experience that made us 
who we are. We hope you can enjoy it and that you get something out of it. And so some of the seed stories that will be told in this episode include cotton, uh, and particularly while Mr. Newsom is going through some cotton and pulling the seeds out of them and also using cotton as an insulator for some seed storage for Moringa seeds, which is another seed story that you'll hear, as well as hearing about the importance of many types of greens and mustard and turnip greens in particular. And then in the very last part of the interview, we are sitting in the kitchen at night making tamales. And so you hear about the importance of tamales in in, uh, holiday food and Christmas food in the Delta. Before we jump into the episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about a crop that's new to all of us, both your parents and you and me over the last few years, uh, Moringa. And I, I think we don't go into a lot of depths about, about it as a plant in the episode. I'm wondering if you could just tell folks, you know, fill in the gaps a little bit. Yeah, well, um, Moringa, Moringa is a, a wonderful, beautiful tree, um, which we learned is in the Brassicales tribe. So it's a distant relative of ye old mustard green, which made us very excited to be able to bring it back to Mississippi. When my parents and I were in Africa and we made a pilgrimage uh, back to our motherland about two years ago. Um, thanks to so many uh, people who helped to make that happen. Um, we, we, we were shocked uh, to see so many places in so many parts of Accra and the surrounding areas in Ghana where we were that looked just like Mississippi, felt like Mississippi. Everybody looked like Mississippi. Down to the billboards on the side of the road with preachers and preachers' wives on it. And it was very... Uh, it was it was just this very powerful and sh- shocking in a pleasant way experience. And uh, in that same way, we recognize uh, Moringa, though we did not know uh, this tree. Um, there's something about it that really, really called to my parents and uh, and to me and my dad's just crazy about it. And we'll probably grow them all over the Delta. I hope it's a tree that likes water. I think it can tolerate it. Um, but um, so it's a, a was a way for us to be able to bring this tree that back home in the motherland is uh, uh, used for food, for medicine, for fodder, for oil, for everything. Uh, and, 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 and you know, just as an all-around healthful uh, uh, guardian of the soil, and that's what we need right now. We need people and beings who can hold on, uh, you know, in rootedness uh, to the soil so that, so that we all can thrive and have something to grow from. So Moringa represents that, I think. Um, It's a plant that can purify water. It's a plant that can do so many things and feed us. And more than anything, I think that what's so powerful about it is uh, in Africa, my understanding that it is one of the famine plant, famine foods. So because it's a tree that can survive some pretty tough situations, it's uniquely adapted to um, the climate that we are actively destroying as a race of humans. Uh, And so we're grateful to that guardian of the soil for coming to us and helping us. So this is one of the foods that when folks ain't got nothing else to eat that they eat. And we know a little bit about that in Mississippi. Uh, so I think for that reason too, it's just an exciting, exciting plant. And we're so glad that it's here. And we, we, some people know it as the drumstick tree, the miracle tree, the horseradish tree. And just this, and, and just this, this weekend we learned that it's also called El Arbol de Libertad. Yeah. In Puerto Rico, from some new Puerto Rican friends from our, uh, of ours here in the neighborhood. Translated, it's a freedom tree. 
right the freedom tree and so it's an awesome tree and we we uh me and your dad text and call regularly during the season to you know update each other on the state of our moringa trees when they flower and for him when they make pods and and we were able to both connect with this uh mentor um around moringa production in charleston south carolina who's advised us both on how to store them over the winter and so it's been an awesome connection for me to like talk to your dad regularly about this plant that we're also excited about yeah so it's the tree has also brought us closer together as a family so we're very grateful to this to this um tree this sister brother uh, soil guardian of ours so the other thing about this conversation is that um we recorded over the course of a couple of days we went went back to my hometown uh greenville and and stayed for quite a while stay for a week uh that's quite a while for us sadly um so um the conversations uh do not have any uh intended or apparent order uh to them so it'll be kind of uh it'll be kind of free flowing like jazz or like a particular kind of blues so just get into it and roll with it because it's a conversation over uh, perhaps one of the most sacred places in the world, which is, uh, to me at least, our kitchen table, um, which is where uh, so much uh, I spent so much of my life. You are going to be, imagine that you're sitting uh, at the kitchen table um, with the Melda, uh, with Rufus, with the kids, Jalen, Jacob, Marion. Oh, with my, even with my auntie Veronica, God help us. And you're sitting at the table and you're having a good time and you're just listening. The fan is going. Cats are running in and out the house. You will hear the doors opening and closing. You might hear something going on the stove. You'll be at home, down home, in the Delta. Field wasn't very far away from where we lived. We lived in Mississippi, Greenville, Mississippi. We lived on white people's land. They were called the Dominics. They were pretty decent folks also, but we went to other people's field to pick and chop cotton. I remember as a small child smelling that fresh cotton, the smell, and I, I crave the smell now, but this cotton doesn't smell the same way it did 50 years ago. It's different. Doesn't have a smell at all. But progress goes on. Do you remember the first times you smelled cotton? And like, what was that like? And where were you? What were you doing? I was in the fields. I was about 10 years old. At that time, I was chopping because. Uh, I think people had stopped picking cotton. There was con- oh, there was combines picking cotton then, but we still needed to chop the weeds between the rows and all. And there weren't a lot of uh, pesticides, I mean herbicides used during that time, so we had to uh, chop the weeds. And so I can remember seeing maybe 60 or 70 people chopping cotton 
it seemed like those roads were a hundred feet long, hot, and so we're chopping and the, the aroma of the cotton, the smell just rises from the cotton, and it just, the smell is all around. Every so often you stop and pull, pull some cotton and just sniff it up your nostrils and all. Then you go back to work. Mm-hmm. What does it smell like? Can you describe it to someone who's never smelled it before? It was a fresh male. A ca- ca- uh, I mean, it was fresh. Uh, it smelled like fresh air. Besides that, I can't describe it, though. Just really fresh. Mm-hmm. Like after a, a noon rain, when the sun comes out, clears up, everything smells so fresh. Remind me of the the wash my mom used to wash outside and hang the clothes up on the line and once the sheets the white sheets dried that, that aroma it would just maybe just suffocate you so, so what are you doing right now right now I'm removing the seeds from uh, some cotton that I picked from the field about two weeks ago on my way home from work uh, this is leftover cotton in the field, so I went out and picked some. I'm sure the owner doesn't mind. <laughs> and so what, what I'm doing now, I'm removing the seeds from the cotton itself. This is what our ancestors did. Everything was done by hand. To remove the seeds from the cotton, it was done by hand. And this is what I'm doing. And I'm reminiscing of my ancestors, my great-great-grandparents, as they sat there on the plantation, probably the afternoon. They've done all their picking now. It's time to remove the seeds. And so they're sitting there removing the seeds, talking and having a good time. And it was very important that they remove the seeds because, of course, you know, those seeds were planted the next year. Have, have you ever grown cotton at your house? Oh, yes, we have. We we grew cotton in Oklahoma. It was so beautiful. People would stop by, older people, and say, you know what, that reminds me when I was a boy, when I used to pick cotton. I hadn't seen cotton in 50 years. And so we had planted a couple of rows out in front of the house there on the main street there, and one of the main streets there in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was, it was a beautiful sight to see. It was about four feet tall. This is white and beautiful. That's why so many people stopped, because some had never seen cotton up close before, just on television. Mm-hmm. But, you know, cotton been around for a thousand of years. The Egyptian grew cotton, and cotton is what kept the South alive. Major crop, major crop cotton. Any questions? Did you have, ever have a brother or sister that died during the slavery? Well, Jay, you know, I wasn't in slavery, but we have, I'm sure we have relatives who die in slavery that we, we've never met. How old were you when you worked in the in the fields, chopping cotton? I started in the field when I was about 10 years old. I started, uh, I think first I, I did do a little picking, and then, as I said, the com- combine, it was already developed, but I guess he was a poor farmer, he hadn't had it yet, but he got it later. And so we just basically chopped. I started off as a chopper, chopping grass between the rows. Then I, I was promoted to the water boy. That was a great promotion. 
all you did was carry water back and forth uh, to the, uh, the workers. And I did that so well, I was I was promoted to a hole fowler. I fouled holes, kept the, kept the holes sharp and all. That's what we cut the weeds with. And I did that all the way up to high school. Um, I earned most of all the money during the summer uh, by working in the field. Because Mama was working a job, she wasn't making that much. But I, I worked the field all summer. And I made $13 a day for almost a month and a half. So imagine how much that was. So they have bought my clothes along with my sisters and my brothers and food for the house also. I never regretted uh, working so hard and rushing home. I couldn't wait to get home and give my money to my mother. We were paid in cash, of course. Of course, uh, actually we made $15 an hour, but the driver took three. Fifteen a day. $15 a day, I'm sorry. We, actually, we made $15 a day, and the driver took three of it. <laughs> I guess for transportation and all that. And I recall Mama, I would get up early in the morning about 2, 3 o'clock because the truck left about 5. And Mom would fix me my breakfast and fix me lunch also. She would make me bologna sandwiches. And um, I think even she would put some uh, tea cakes in the, in, the, in the bag container. Tea cakes were like homemade cookies and all. I mean, they were just wonderful. They were like, I mean, just a flat cookie. Just delicious. We call them tea cakes. Was it like the sugar cookies that Jayla made the other day? They weren't sure. They didn't have sugar on it outside, but they were sweet, though, just from the inside. Sugar, sugar. sugar. Recipe, That's what it was? But it's, it's thicker. It's thicker, yeah. It was a thicker, was a thicker cookie. Yeah. So did, did other people in your family work in the same field? Did your brothers and sisters do the same work? I remember my brother, well, my brothers had left already, but I do remember my sister, they tried it. Uh, the oldest sister, um, of course, you understand, it was hot during that time, really hot. And I do recall my sisters going a few times, but they they couldn't maintain. And then my baby sister, Emma, she tried and she couldn't maintain because it was so hot. Well, not just then, there was several people that just couldn't do it. They couldn't work in the field. But for me, I worked. I had to work. I needed to work for my family's sake. Did you ever get uh, tired of uh, picking cotton for them? I didn't pick cotton a whole long time. I didn't do it a long period of time because someone developed a cotton machine, the combine. Yeah. I thought they didn't care. You thought who didn't care? The people that you had to pick cotton for. Yes, they care. They want their crop in. Uh, they want it, and they want things done cheap. They want things done as cheap as possible. That's why people use machines, even though the machines hurt the earth. Machine can do the work of a hundred men or more. Was they would have paid to have to pay a hundred men or boys thirteen dollars a day? For for example, I was watching a when I was watching the BBC. The uh, it's like the History Channel. The BBC was talking about talking about a certain whale can eat up to like two hundred pounds of. Uh, certain fish a day but not in the fishers the fisheries can, they can collect four to five thousand tons of it in a day and so they just I mean what they're doing they're taking more fish they're just taking too much uh-huh there soon won't be none left it won't be none any because they're taking too much they're taking too much like in this article i read about penguins penguins uh, are dying off because their parents are leaving them 
for food and them they're um searching for fish and fishermen get too many fish and the adult penguins have to go farther and farther away from their children well, dying to because, get fish. They're dying because when they leave, predators come by and snatch their babies. Or if they don't return, they die from starvation unless they're adopted by another mother penguin. Can I ask you another question about when you were growing up? Mm-hmm. Um, how was your, What was your day-to-day life like? like? How did it compare to the life that your grandchildren live now like at, at home and, and, and in the community because we had hardly we, we we only had enough to sustain ourselves um of course we had a television but of course we didn't have what the kids have now and i can't compare because i can't compare and say well we didn't have games and they have computer games now um everything we did Basically, we was outside a lot. We stayed outside a lot. We did a lot of outside activities and all. Uh, we played outside a lot. We we produced our own toys. We wouldn't have any. Like picking up a stick or something, going around, dragging it on the ground, rolling a tire down the road or the, uh, the gravel street there. That's the type of fun that we had uh, going fishing, not standing in the house all the time, watching video games or playing video games or uh, uh, etc. Things like that. We were, we were more active than kids are. I'm sure. I was more active than what my grandkids are now. Even though my oldest grandson plays football, I was way active than what he, then, than what he is right now. Because they have video games and he's on that a lot. And of course, he's also preparing himself, uh, when he go to college by watching other football players by, playing the video games and I'm not saying that's it's not helpful I think it is helpful but we didn't have that we learned we basically we learned by trial and error we were out there we we learned to play sports just by doing it um, we learned from my parents by watching what they were doing and and they had us participate in it wasn't like it wasn't like well I don't want to do it you did it because you you had to do it you had to do it um what did did you all have a um, a kitchen garden at the house or a farm at the house? And, and what were the things that were the most important crops that you would grow at home? Oh yeah, we did. We lived in the country. Matter of fact, the whole family lived in proximity of each other, no more than twenty twenty five feet away. There's my grandmother in the middle, my uncle on the left. And my mother and I, and us, we're on the right side. My mother, my grandmother lived in a shotgun house. If you're not familiar with a shotgun house, just what it says, one door from the, one door in the front, one door in the back. So you go straight out. That's why they consider them, it's considered though, they call them shotgun homes and all. Just a little box, uh, with the front door and the back door. So my grandmother lived there, and we lived in a regular house with two bedrooms. Well, I don't, I'm not gonna, no, let me rephrase that. Two rooms. We had a front room, that's where mother slept. And there was a back room where all the kids slept. I think there was two beds in the back. Everybody slept together, boys and girls. We had a wash, a metal wash tub that we bathed probably, I think, maybe once a week. Maybe once a week on the weekend. Uh, girls, they washed first and then we would come in second. We didn't change the water. We used the same water. Bathe there, and once it was finished, we threw it out. And we didn't have indoor toilet. We had what we call a slot pot. 
It was a pot about three feet tall, hewlett white, and that's what we use for the indoor toilet. Once that thing is filled, you can't use so you have to go outside uh, time one, two in the morning and all to the out the outhouse, what we call it. And the outhouse was just a building, a small building with a hole dug about five about four or five foot deep. And the house was set over the hole and that's where we that was our, our toilet, our outside toilet. And once that toilet was filled, we moved the house. The dirt that we recovered from that, we, we used that and covered that back up and dig another hole and put the house over that hole. And so the process continued on. Here, 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 here. Uh -huh. This is one of the ways that people also kept their soil fertile. <laughs> huh? Yeah. I have a question. Did any children, um, little babies in your house, I mean, little sisters or brothers that was uh, babies, did they sleep in little drawers where you put clothes at? Your uncle, uncle Chris slept in a baby drawer, in a dresser drawer. He slept as he was a baby. We didn't have dressers, but we, we were too poor. We didn't have nothing like that uh, when we lived in the country. Uh, everything was just stored. Wherever in boxes and all, we didn't have a dresser with four or five drawers where you can store stuff. We didn't have that. We were too poor, and so we just managed the way we're there. Uh -huh. That was then. And so, and so, what what would be in the kitchen garden? What what kind of things would be grown outside? Oh, the garden. Yeah, away from there. Yeah, we usually okay in the garden. There will be corn, okra, squash. Mustard greens, of course, mustard greens. Turnips, huge turnip bottom. Um, peas, beans, watermelons, sweet potatoes. And of course, around the house, you would have a mess of mustard greens right there, right there available for you, right beside the house, the front door. We just go out and pick them when you needed some. Just like you had in Oklahoma, that's how you grew up, always having a big patch of mustard greens? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I always had a pack of mustard greens. Uh, mustard green was a favorite green. Uh, of course, we ate other greens also, but it was the favorite green for every black that I knew during that time. Everybody loved mustard greens. Oh, yeah, it's still good. Where we live, people, people think of collard greens as the southern greens. What do you have to say about that? Oh, that's fine, too. We've eaten, we've eaten collard also, uh -huh, but... I think I prefer the mustard myself, though. <laughs> we don't, in Mississippi, we don't favor the collard. In this part of the country, people don't favor collard. I was in a conversation with a woman in Kroger today. She said, I've never eaten any. She didn't know how to cook it. This is a grown woman older than me. And so I gave her a recipe of how to cook it. She was afraid because we don't eat them. You go to the grocery store here, you go to the grocery store in Mississippi, the first top shelves are turnip greens and mustard greens, and then collard greens on the bottom because it's the least picked. She didn't know how to pick. It was too tough. But also, I believe that there was a reason we ate turnip and mustard greens. The main ailment of enslaved Africans and then our descendants, their, their descendants, um, has always been stomach ailments. It's always been infections of the stomach, oftentimes, but just infections, you know, and particularly gut health has always been real important. Mm -hmm. You eat mustard greens, you know what I'm saying, because traditionally black people got, even in daddy's lifetime, they got the worst of the food. Yeah. They got the worst of the food. They got what well, they got. They got after white folks was finished, and then they're throwing it away. That's what you got to eat. Oh, so you used to get second rate food, 
spoiled over mold. I ain't talking about during slavery. I'm talking about the 60s. You know, you would get used to getting second rate food. Just how many black people still live today? Many poor people all over the country I still live today. The place that we live on the, the Dominic place, we would shell peas for him. And once we completed that, he would send all his leftover fruit to us, like grapes, apple, pears, cherry. Of course, they had been picked over by everybody. So he would send there was a box full of box full of the grapes were all cracked open and juice running out. But hey, we saw that boy. Oh my goodness, that was that was a treasure. But they didn't know that was a treasure for us. They just getting rid of that mess. But it was a treasure for us. Because we didn't really get fresh uh, fruits like that. We had no fruit trees around. Uh -huh, no fruit trees at all. None. And we went out to pick blackberries. There weren't any blackberry bushes around where we lived, so we had to go elsewhere and pick the blackberry. But that box of fruits was a, was a treasure to us. We enjoyed it. What else would you pick out in, in the neighborhood or in the wild? All I can recall is we picked blackberries, but once we moved to the city, there were pears, there was peaches. The neighbor had several pear trees, and during the summer, all the families got together and harvested pears and made preserves and all. Sure we planted a fruit tree, fruit tree implies permanence. Really, ownership. So you say y'all don't have any fruit trees. It makes sense. You didn't own your land. There were no fruit trees. You didn't own your land. There was none. And you did not put up fruit trees. Fruit trees were, was a sign that I, I live here now and I'm going to be here for a while. There were any. That we, of course, we didn't stay there either long. I mean, when I became of age, we left. We left all that behind. Sure did. But, uh. But. During the fall of the year, we harvest our sweet potatoes and all, and we had a good, huge crop. Of course, we all, we'd already harvest our corn and stuff like that. And I can't recall putting up any corn, but Mama did can peas and beans. So, and I know my grandmother loved, uh, what is it, man? The, it goes in the ground, purple, uh, beets. Your grandmother, your great grandmother loved beets. Planted them all the time, yeah. All the time. She loved beets. And she had this one collard plant for years. And it just grew and grew and she just take the leaves off. And one day I was I was cutting the grass and I accidentally cut it down. It didn't come back. That was it didn't come back. Sure it did. And this is the reason why we lost our fingerprints also picking cotton and move, removing the seeds. So if you continue to do that, no that's what I have fingerprints. I'm saying our ancestors, so oh, really? they do it somewhere. They lost fingerprints. They have, they didn't have fingerprints, but especially during that season there. But of course, when you stop, they were, they did return. The prints, they were, they were turned back to you. Yeah. Didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they will return. There's something, there's something kind of really deep and, and powerful about the idea that you would lose your fingerprints picking through cotton mm -hmm. um, because um, it's kind of also what happened in a real way. You know, in, in this culture and in this century, fingerprints are used to identify people. Mm -hmm. 
So to say you lost your fingerprints, you know, also sounds like you lost your identity. That's that's what it was. That, 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 during that period of time, we, mm -hmm. we lost our identity. Yeah, mm -hmm. sure did. That's something powerful. We lost our fingerprints. Mm -hmm. I know that people would use. I asked you about that. Now the kids aren't in the room. That people would use during slavery times. I know that our grandmothers would use cotton as an abortifacient in order to abort mm -hmm. their pregnancies, you know, yeah, abort no. their babies. Yeah, and that if things got real, that was the last resort. Things were terrible, terrible, terrible. This was knowledge that women kept amongst themselves and never let out. So very rarely used, but for people who were tired of getting, women who were tired of being constantly impregnated by force, especially by their white masters. Of course, you have to worry about the white men and black men. Mm -hmm. You were an enslaved woman. But you really had to worry about the white men who had absolute indiscriminate power over you. Did you know that? You never heard of cotton being associated with abortion? Never. First time. I'm very glad to, you know, that to have my father in my life. And I'm very proud to be able to do the work um, that he did and that his father and his mothers did and their fathers and mothers did, even if they did it, um, you know, by force. You know, I'm, I'm really proud to be able to, that we did not, like so many other black people in this country, abandon the knowledge and the skills just because it came with some pain, you know. So I I, I, I credit my being a Christian with being able to be able to understand that. I told you about what Miss Walker said, Mr. Walker's wife. Mm. I never go back to the farm. I thought that was so rude of her to say that. She said the farmer to the south. No, the farm. Mm. I never go because they made me do all that. They made me do that. They made me do it. You have a lot of people for whom that was their only experience. That they they could never see it as something that they. But it sustained them though. Yeah. And they didn't see it like that. That tells me that that was some secret. Uh, was some hatred. Some type of hatred that they have for the farm or their family they want to work on it. I'm like if they made me do it. How else would you to survive if they didn't make you do it for you? Because apparently you didn't want to do it. You're talking about at this point family making making the kids work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we talking but about. But everybody has to work. Everybody How was you gonna eat if you didn't work? think that so much is we, we we just as a people have lost so much of that work ethic you know that sense of ownership and then they can people can blame the experience with the land you know as being the reason they don't want to do you know don't want to work don't want to do anything outside especially but you know at the I'm end of the day i don't i don't yeah i don't understand why I'm we don't have that conclusion they just don't want to do anything why would it have to make you do it? Why can't they just tell you, well, go ahead and get this done? You saw them do it. Why was it so hard for you to do it? Because you didn't want to do it. But you said we got too much. We had too much, yeah. We have, too we, much. Have, we have too much. You start getting a sense of entitlement. And, uh, you know. Yeah. I think it had to be in the early or mid-60s. When I was a little girl, 
there was a bean truck that, you know, we had trucks coming through the neighborhood all the time. The one bad thing was that in our neighborhoods, they all had ditches. The streets were not like regular streets in other neighborhoods. So what ended up happening is one day, a bean truck came down through the neighborhood. And I guess it may have taken a wrong turn oh, off of no. highway number uh, one. But the next thing we knew, oh, this huge truck had tipped over in the ditch. It was a huge truck. The truck was full of beans, green beans. Well, back then, that was like a treat to have, like, fresh green beans. So they had been freshly picked. That word went all through the neighborhood. People sent their little babies, their children, everybody with a pillowcase sack. And we were peeling up and getting those beans. It was a quiet driver driving the truck. And he was just screaming, and, and then he just gave up because there was so many people there just grabbing those beans off the ground, even though they were grabbing sometimes dirt. It was just like a rush. And what I remember during that time, it was like, it just seemed like everything was really dark and dingy, and, and people were in a state of hunger at that time. Why I felt that way, I don't know, but I remember feeling like that was something from God. It was so miraculous that this truck tipped over in our neighborhood and people had so many green beans to eat. And back then, you know, we had to snap them and do all that, but nobody cared because you had food then. It was like you had fresh green beans. Guy couldn't call the police. He couldn't call anybody because there were no cell phones back then. He just sat on the curb and just watched his whole truck get demolished. Um, I mean, just everything was taken out of those. I mean, no green beans left, not one. <laughs> wow. So did you grow up also shelling peas? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just a regular thing to do. Like, if you wanted to eat, it was a way of keeping your food for the winter. It was so much work, and it was so hot. In Mississippi, there were no air conditions for a long time. People only had box fans. And the way I got cool was I would I would go <laughs> and hide in the closet and lay on the cold floor because it was just I it was as if I wasn't even from Mississippi or something I just could not take the heat I would lay there for hours on that floor trying to cool off and then air conditioners came along. You know, before then, everybody had screen doors and screen windows, and they were up all night, all day. And you put the box fan in there, but it was just blowing hot air. So we were just blessed that when air conditioners did come out, we were one of the families that was able to, to get an air conditioner. But that was a lifesaver for me, because I just knew I was not going to make it. <laughs> So your memory of shelling peas is just heat. It was just so much heat. And it was it was like you had to get it done. You had to get it done. You would get a big bowl and then you think, Oh well I'm done. You were never done. It was never ending. It just seemed like it went on and on and on. You know, but we were thankful for it in the wintertime when mom would come out and, you know, take it out the freezer and 
and, and make these peas that we had put up for the summer that we had shelled. It was me and my three sisters. We all shelled peas. Where'd the peas come from? You know, it used to be people that come out and come, you know, down the street in, in cars. Well, not the old-fashioned trucks. They would come in these trucks and and they they'd scream, you know, watermelon, watermelon man, or they they'd have peas and fresh greens, and they would holler out in a song of sorts to let you know what they had that day. And people would rush to the truck and 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 purchase it. It's, you know, that was the way that they did it. Do you remember at all any of the songs they might sing? I just remember the one, the watermelon man. But I can't sing, so I'm not embarrassed myself. <laughs> but he would say, watermelon, watermelon man. Whoa, watermelon, watermelon man. <laughs> and, you know, every kid in the neighborhood loved watermelon. So we'd all be begging out, Mom, to please, Mom, get us watermelon. Get us a watermelon. But they were also, like I said, they, they sell peas and things. But always there was a neighbor that grew a lot of things like that. And they would share with the next door neighbors, you know, mm -hmm. uh, some of their bounty that they would, that they would get. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know, it, was, it had become to some people a source of shame to get garden-raised food. They didn't want people to know because it, it made it seem like they were very poor if they were having to grow a garden to eat, mm -hmm. which I, as a child, never understood that. I'm thinking, ah, uh, these vegetables look great. Mm -hmm. But um, some people felt it was, you know, shameful to, to grow a garden or to eat from a garden. Mm -hmm. But that was the lifesaver for most people. I, I remember, too, in the summers, the way I would eat, uh, it would be a group of girls, and we, you know, we were all, our own little posses. <laughs> so we we gather together in the morning, at one, you know, special location, and then we wait to the to whomever house that we were gonna go to, that they had gone to work, and so we knew where every peach, plum, tree, pear tree, we knew where every one of them were in our neighborhood, and we wait till they go to work and raid the trees. I remember just sitting, you know, somewhere in an empty vacant lot and laying on the ground and just eating peaches or plums and, you know, the juice dripping all over our faces and arms, you know. I, I just remember that. Like, And then a rumor went out, and we don't, I don't know if it was ever true, but it became really bad because a lot of people, when they got home, their branches would be broken down. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't our group of people. Apparently, you know, some other group had done that. But we were trying to be really careful when we'd go in to get the peaches and plums and things. Mm -hmm. But um, a rumor had gone out that this woman had sprayed her tree and some child had gone while the people were gone and eaten the fruit and died. And that, that kind of put an end to what we were doing because after that, mm. our parents said, you all are probably going around eating, you know, because we, we never bought our loot or fruit home. We just ate it in, you know, an empty lot or something that was in the neighborhood. Mm. And like I said, that was the end of it. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
I, I just remember relocating back here to Mississippi, and the first thing I wanted to find was where are those neighborhood trees that were in the front yards and, and backyards, and they were all gone, and I couldn't understand it. I remember going to our um, farm service agent and NRCS person, too, and asking them, like, what happened to all the fruit trees? This place is abundant with fruit trees. You know, pomegranates, big, huge pomegranates, and all those things that when I was in Oklahoma, you paid a lot of money for, and these were just on trees here. But the, the trees were all gone. And what I was told, that, that some some um, some kind of virus had hit uh, back in the 90s that uh, took out a lot of the fruit trees, and they just never, people never put them back. Because the people that would have owned them would have been uh, great-grandparents. And so I, I guess the, the ones that were still here didn't find that, you know, as valuable. Or they didn't think that people would eat off us, still eat off the trees. I, I, I don't know. But I know I was very disappointed. And one of the things I'd like to do is to kind of maybe perhaps look in some sorts of funding to bring back those neighboring, you know, fruit trees mm -hmm. and teach children that, that they're, they're edible. You can eat directly from the tree, mm -hmm. you know. We didn't wash them off or anything. Now, I'm not saying don't wash your stuff off, but I'm saying as a kid, we did not wash our stuff off. We were so happy to get those plums and pears, and none of us got sick, mm -hmm. you know. So. I think that's why you all didn't get sick, that you ate, you ate food with all the microbes and all the good bacteria. Because mm -hmm. now they understand white man science foods that you can get, um, that you, there are more probiotics for your gut health contained in the core of an apple than eating yogurt. You know, so when you eat apple, the skin and the core and that sort of thing, you get all of that good bacteria in a way that you just would never get. Now we would, you know, back then we weren't scared of worms. We we'd like eat around and try to pull the worm out with our finger or something, and just ate the part where the worm wasn't. You know, we we didn't freak out about seeing a worm in something. You know, we just ate around it and you know just kept eating. And I remember eating figs. Figs have so many ants in it, and. We didn't care about eating the ant back then, you know, we just, because the, the fig is so good. We were just like, oh my God, it's so sweet. Because back then, parents didn't let you have a lot of sweet stuff, you know. It was something, this new disease that it was only talked about in whispers. And they thought for sure that that's what caused people to have this disease. And they call it sugar diabetes. Or they, no, they would say sugar. That person had sugar, but it was said in a whistle like, oh, yeah, they, they got sugar. Shh, don't talk about it. And they looked at it as a cancer, almost. And that's the way they talked about it. And then back then, we actually got worms, you know, like real worms. You know, you could go to the bathroom and you'd have a worm coming out of you. It was, and, I mean, you know, as a kid, you're freaking out because something is coming out your body that wasn't, like your regular stuff that comes out your body. <laughs> but it was, now that freaked us out. We didn't care about eating worms and stuff. We didn't want one coming out of you. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. But that, you know, 
That's just one of those stories that that people don't know about. And back then, now, I never hear of any kids having worms. You know, so apparently, maybe the immunizations or something else. I don't know what they're doing. Hmm? They don't get worms anymore. Most young parents have never heard of what what I'm telling you today. That, well, that you, you know, could part actually of that, go to the restroom with a stomach ache and then then you give birth to a worm. <laughs> and long as they have worm you ever seen. No, I mean, they had worms when I was a kid. We eat the worms. I know you all were the last generation to have worms. And it was it was it was sort of an anomaly that you all had them. No. Yes, it was. The doctor then they have not really been treating a lot of children with worms. But you see, this is why we kept mustard greens in our garden, mustard and turnip greens in our garden. They were fumigants. They were fumigants since most of our ailments were stomach ailments. I didn't know people didn't get worms anymore. I had no idea. But the worms you all had got were pinworms that come down at night. These were not the worms that you you sat on the toilet and just gave birth to. I mean, that was different. I mean, it, now, thank God, nobody has to burp a worm anymore. Well, I don't know about that. Because I think that probably, not, I don't know if I would thank God for it, because getting worm, not getting worms means that there's something not in the environment. It's good. I mean, I don't want to have worms again, ever. No. But... What does it mean that we're in such a sterile environment that we also don't have near as many birds? You know, we're not near well, as many birds. Well, when you're a little kid and you're you're there screaming, somebody got to pull that worm out. No, I don't know. Yeah, that's not cool. So switching gears a little bit. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we really went down a wormhole. Yes. Yeah. Particularly with people, especially like, in the north and stuff, where there's just some little, some little, like connection to to people didn't take care. Of, like, I don't even know. Did you go to the doctor and have worms? We did. No, everything people got care taken of care everything. of at home. Back then, yeah. you didn't go to a doctor. They gave you, um, what, what was that one? Turpentine. Turpentine either killed you or healed you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the way it was. But it's other little stuff bit you took for it. worms. It's other stuff. I've I yeah. gone down in all of the, the list of Mississippi mm-hmm. cures. Yeah, well, I just remember, if you had to get turpentine, you were dealing with something real serious. <laughs> it was like the the mother of, of getting rid of anything that was serious. <laughs> like if turpentine couldn't do it, then you were going to die anyway. Do you remember other home remedies? No, see, my grandma was the kind of person that she didn't do a whole lot of, you know, old-fashioned remedies. Yes, I only heard it. Well, I heard of Well, she did things like when I had a baby, you know, um, and I was having real bad cramps, and then um, I, I went to take my, my, my shower, and when I got back, and I laid down in the bed, and I didn't have any more severe cramps. And, and she asked me, are you still cramping? I said, no. And what I found out she had done was she had put a sharp axe between the mattress and the... Um, what do you call it? The uh, uh, board, and it cut off the the sharp cramps that I was having. You know, unbeknown to me, I didn't know why. They just stopped. It was miraculous. I'm glad. Thank you, God. I was just so glad they stopped because they were, you know, real extreme. And I guess that's the uterus, you know, contracting everything, trying to get back into shape. Um, but I know things like that. She didn't really do a whole lot of things like um, my husband, Bob, we're 
where she would use a fat pack and put it on open wounds and things like that. That was, I found that really shocking. That was different than I had grown up with. Um, I, I think mine was meant mostly, we got medication. My grandma would buy Castoria if you needed it or, you know, um, whatever, constipation or whatever, things like that. Um, or we had Creomotion, Creomotion, and it had the things in it. It had those old kinds of medicines in it. Um, and we did. We never took Father John because it had castor oil in it. <laughs> we took castor oil, which was, it tastes better. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but my husband, <laughs> they were Father taking John? Father John, and they were get, taking a big dose of uh, cod liver oil. In the in the um, but you also castor oil too. I mean, you got to remember, especially like nowadays, castor oil is considered a home remedy. That was a medicine, but it's not. Well, we didn't. We didn't knows. do castor oil. Mama didn't didn't do. Why did y'all give us castor oil? You didn't take castor oil. Mm-mm. I didn't. We didn't. We. I only remember taking it like uh, one time, and I I don't know why mom did it that one time. Why but it was not a continuum. Why did y'all give it to us? Um. Oh, because your dad had used it, so I, I went, you know, I did. Oh, like, okay, well, you know, he grew up with that, and he felt like that was something he wanted to do. He said it really helps the kids get through the flu, the cold season, all of that. And you got that during cold and flu season. You, you sure got did. that big dose of warm castor oil with a little bit of sugar in it. I mean, you just took the biggest spoonful you could. It was horrible tasting, but. <laughs> but the kids, they really didn't get a lot of colds and, and things from them. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I think it protects you for older age, too. Mm-hmm. Perhaps so, since you had it while you were young. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting here preparing for a big Christmas meal. I'm wondering if you remember the like quintessential, like most important dishes from this area, from your grandparents' generation. That have made maybe some that made it to the future, maybe some that didn't. Well, one of the ones that didn't, and I I tried to bring it back, and and I did it Thanksgiving. Was ambrosia? Ambrosia was one of the ones that, and I don't. I'm, I'm pretty sure every household didn't do it. Um, for I guess I grew up mostly, what was was black middle class, and so ambrosia is this really delicious. Um, concoction of fruit with coconuts, oranges in it. We use mandarin oranges. Uh, this year I used a seedless orange, but not the halo oranges. It was another type of orange. I used that with the coconut and pineapples, and um, and we had nuts, and, and you put, um, I'm thinking that we, we put cranberry, we put cherries in it. And so you blend all of this together. But that's one of the ones that, um, if you go and you look at old Southern cookbooks, it's still there. And the Giblet gravy um, is something that's a must-have at, at Christmas and Thanksgiving. But you usually do a goose, upper middle class again, you do a goose along with the turkey for, for Christmas and um, a duck and turkey for Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. That's we always had like two different meats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that. And then besides the meats, you know, I know that southern peas are super important. 
crowder peas, butter beans. Um, what, are, what are like the vegetable dishes, whether they have meat in them or not? What are the most important vegetables of this region? Of course, all of the greens, you know, this uh, collard greens, mustard greens, turnip greens, and not the curly ones, you know, just the straightly uh, mustard greens. My, my mom never really uh, did collard, collard greens that much. And Rufus, he didn't, he, he, he didn't do collard greens. He didn't like them. I don't know. So we've had a time trying to, you know, um, fix them in a way that, that he would eat them also. So what I've come up with now that he will eat them is with, I blend them with cabbage. So I stir fry them with cabbage and, and all that. And what, what has changed is we, I do more stir frying of greens than Ours, they were just boiled with lots of meat and lots of, um, you know, fat back and uh, salt pork and things like that. Um, and that's how the greens were made. We had sweet potatoes, you know, that were candy, candied sweet potatoes is what we called it. And peas. Now, these were not things, the peas were not really things that we ate at, at the holiday time. We did mostly greens and, and dressing and and things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So not the not the butter beans either? No. Because remember they weren't in season. Mm -hmm. Those were things you, you kept in your freezer for hard times. You didn't it wasn't bought out during celebratory times. It was just kinda of bought out during um, hard times getting mm -hmm. through the winter. We're making tamales with my mama at Christmas. We eat tamales in the Mississippi Delta. They were introduced by Mexican immigrants in the 30s and 40s. They bought up here to work. And we adapted and adopted food their food ways. Because we Africans, we like spicy food anyway. It was a perfect mix. Although I think some things have changed, I'm finding more people, uh, African Americans, that can't tolerate uh, spicy foods. And I, yeah, I found that real strange. Cause when I was growing up, we we enjoyed tamales and a little spice and Tabasco. Now people are like, I don't want Tabasco, you know. It goes hand in hand uh, with a whole, whole deterioration of a lot of black culture. We can't eat our foods anymore. I know, like our trip to Africa, it was so surprising. I don't know why I found it surprising that the food was really spicy. I, you know, I, I didn't think of African food as being that spicy. I mean, yeah, but the, the the African food here has been, I don't know, it's been kind of toned down for for Americans. But in Africa, you get the full African flavor and the spiciness. Like it's it's really spicy. Eating high food. Black people, to my knowledge, always ate high food everywhere. That was one thing that distinguished us. One thing that was common to us, no matter where I went, Negroes in Omaha or in uh, uh, Oklahoma. Well, I don't know about Oklahoma. That's a different breed of black. They don't really eat high food. <laughs> Shoot. They don't really eat no high food. I don't know what to say about that. But I always thought, you know, coming up, and especially being in my young 20s, that, that um, that was just something almost sacred to black.
black people is that we 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 could eat spicy foods, but now I'm finding more and more people like oh like this hot. Even white people in the south ate spicier food than white people in the north. I expected when I went to the north, black people up there, you know, they can't take nothing. Black pepper to them is hot. Yeah, I used just a, a tiny bit of cayenne when I when I moved back here, and people were like, my tongue is on fire, and it's like it's a very little bit in there. So when I have guests now, I have to really know that they can tolerate any kinds of spice that, you know. I don't ask, child. I just make it. And you're going to eat or you're not going to eat it. Most times they like it and they have to drink a lot of water or whatever. But I ain't, I ain't tolerating them. These folks need to learn how to eat their traditional foods in a traditional way. I ain't making no concessions. Yeah, but people here act like you need to call the fire department when they eat something. Like it's so hot. So, so hot. And it is. It is. It's like, this is not fun. Old people, maybe people are old and their stomach can't take anymore what they used to be able, what they used to be able to take. But see, that's something you know, because our grandchildren, they can eat hot chips and hot Cheetos and all, all kind of hot spicy chips, but they cannot stand spicy foods. These kids eat hot food. No, these these do because you know it's forced upon them that. If you're gonna, you know, they they see the the, the analogy between hot Cheetos and um, and eating hot food, you know. So that's the difference. They 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 see that it's it's real. Can you tell us what you're doing here? Like, what's the process? Okay, so we 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 started our um, our steaming uh, pots going. Uh, we put the insets in there, the steaming basket part, and then we have the bamboo um, steamers going. So we actually have like four pots on, but a total of what, six, six steamers? Oh, three pots, and how many is that? That's about five steamers, maybe five steamers going. Yeah, we got them doubled up. Okay, so what's the next step? You make the masa. You take the masa and put the masa in the leaf. We soak the leaf. So we're yeah. clean the leaves yeah. off. As I was telling him, like, you really still have to look at them and clean them, make sure that they're clean. They look clean, but we got to make sure that they're clean. Um, and, so, um, and so after that, they soak for a little bit to make them um, more movable as we're putting the... Um, we're doing vegetarian ones, so we're putting the beans and cheese and and jalapenos and onions, garlic, putting all that together. So we we pat the we form the dough, we make the masa and uh, mix it up and form the dough into little clumps. So we gather a little clump and and we pat it into the husk and then start layering from that. We layer, layer our beans and and um, peppers and cheese and roll it up. But you know what? I saw, Mommy, when we was in Africa, this is not... I know why we adapted this so quickly. It's, it's why, why the Mexican workers, they bought it probably. They was eating it for their lunch and shared it with us because I'm sure they had to live where we live. I know they didn't live where, black people, where white people live. That I read on Southern Food Alliance is that the, the Mexicans were also working in the fields. 
Um, and this was during, I understand this was during the time of slavery. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Maybe I'm, I may have that messed up. During slavery, mommy. No, that's what they're saying. I, I don't know. Let me look it back up just to be sure. Well, it was either after that or after the Civil War that they were here. Um, mm-hmm. But they were working side by side in the fields together. Okay, quick side note to say we looked it up, and the, there are three hypotheses that the Southern Food Alliance wrote about in their article. One was that in the early 1900s, migrant labor from Mexico came up for the cotton harvest. Another is that 100 years earlier during the U.S.-Mexico War, soldiers came back with recipes to the Mississippi Delta um, from Mexico. And a third is that the mound building, Native Cultures, which we actually went to visit, if you'll remember from our first episode during this same trip to the Delta, had a tradition of making tamales. So there you go. See, when we went to Africa, we saw that they were all, when we got there, they, they, people were eating basically what were tamales. In, in, in Ghana, West Africa, they call it banku. And banku is fermented masa. All it is is masa that's fermented. Wrapped up in a corn leaf, look just like this. It's flavored by its fermentation. And you use that as something, as a base, and you eat you eat stuff with it. You take it out, they heat it up, and then they heat it up and they use it as a starch to eat your meat with, to eat your beans with. So it's basically the same thing. So, you know, and I'm sure before corn made to Africa, we were already eating, we were eating something else like this. It's all a, a tamale, a tamale is, is a dumpling. Everybody eat dumplings. Every culture got their own dumpling. Can you describe what you're doing right this minute and the plate that's in front of you? Breaking up shit, messing this up. Bam. Can you be, use a little more imagery? I'm folding the, I'm folding the tamale with the, with the masa and the, the filling in it. And I'm tying it up with another string from that I made out of ripped up. The ripped up oja. The ripped up oja of the maize. Corn leaf. It, it it like tears right along the grain. I mean, it makes a straight tear. So yeah, I, I, I like that. It makes it a lot easier to put it together. So we're closing the top and the bottom. So when we steam them, it, it won't just you know seep out of the top. But I'm thinking if we put them um, tightly together, as tight as we can, without you know, putting an indention in it so deep that it doesn't look like a tamale. I think it'll be all right. Did you make these when you were in Oklahoma? We did. When um, when Romel would come home um, during the holidays, him and I would, would um, after the Christmas, break, we would make these tamales together. I would make the meat ones, and he'd make the vegetarian and sweet. Yeah, just the dessert ones. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about making them until he, um, you know, he kept reminding me of of having them back in Mississippi. And I never really thought about making them and, and how easy it was. People don't make them. People buy them. I mean, it's always one lady who make it in the neighborhood. And everybody else buy it from her. 
it's, it's getting like that in Mexico too, from my understanding. It's tr traditionally, this is Christmas food. This is like holy day food. You make it. I don't know why Christmas. It's Native American tradition, but people make it at Christmas time. And it used to be my understanding in Mexico, everybody, people would make it. All the ladies would get together, and you have it, and you make it in literally a tub, a big old tub, and it was an all night affair. And you did it Christmas Eve, and you had them all. And then you just had tamales upon tamales upon tamales. And now people just wait for the person, who, for whoever the lady is, who knows how to make it, to make it. So, because I'm vegetarian and in Mississippi, you can get a lot of tamales in the Delta, but you can't get none vegetarian, nowhere. Well, now this one guy started selling some, but I don't think he makes it. Yeah, he doesn't make it in mass quantities. You may have to order them. But you know, even though Mexicans don't make a lot of vegetarian tamale, only only vegetarian tamale that I've had has been from Salvadorians or Central Americans. They usually make it just straight corn. They pepper tamale. They vegetable tamale. I've seen all that in that well, not in Mississippi. In Mississippi, they only want the pork, and they want the, they want their tamale to be red and dripping with grease. Oh yeah, grease make it better. <laughs> yeah, Coca Colas, crackers, or when I used to, when we were younger, we we ate it with uh, donuts, with hot donuts. We would eat the tamale, the sweet and salty together. Where would you get them? We got the Shipley donuts. That's, that's, that's what they say. <laughs> the best donuts. So you get to see them being made and, and you get to get hot donuts now. That's the donut place that's still downtown there? Um, They have one store downtown, but it's one. Uh, well, we did go to the one downtown because this other one wasn't here. No, but that one. Right, that's the one we went to, cause the, the other one wasn't here. The one on number one, highway number one. Oh, you know when you was little. Cause when I was little, when you were little, it was there. Right, but when we were little. They they took some of the pictures from back then. Mm-hmm. Because they got all the pictures of all them nice white ladies eating their donuts. We never drove out that far. You know, it was kind of scary to, to drive into a territory that you, you oh, know, you knew was all white. So we wouldn't have really come out this this far. No, we didn't. Remember, we, we went to. No, I'm talking about before that. <laughs> Before we that, did it if you were going on South End, the back way down Reed Road or whatever that road is to get into Sunflower. I don't remember going down Reed Road when I was younger. We didn't go I down remember this that was we coming right this way. Was, this was too far. Because you didn't have cell phones. If you got in trouble with people, there's no cell phones. <laughs> we didn't come. Did you hear, hear stories of people getting in trouble out here? Well, getting in trouble, like if your car broke down, you're in a all-white neighborhood. I mean, you know, anything could have happened. I don't know why you didn't think that they would do anything to you, but it was rumored. 
It was rumored. It was rumored, but that was a book. Yeah, but I lived in a lot of fear. I couldn't wait to get away from it. Having grown up in fear. As much about prejudice. That's not true. I don't know where she grew up. What you know, mommy? That's true. No, what she's saying, Greenville. No, she is true. The Delta. No, I'm not gonna say that they didn't have the problem, but but there was more black. This was the seed of black power. She's right. She's right, and there was more black-white cooperation here. You don't know, mommy. You grew up in Greenville, thank God. But honestly, the rest of Mississippi was hell for black people. The Delta, I, I, she right, I'm going to tell you what, I have a Mississippi history textbook that states, and this textbook speaks with such vitriol and venom about the Delta, especially about Greenville. That's how I know that black people were successful. They talk about, they say, oh, black, they, they, they believe that black people were being put over white, over poor white farmers here. That's what, because black people were successful after Reconstruction and stuff. Black people here had got more clout. And so the Delta has always been prosperous for black people historically. You got to think about this is this is the seat of Mount Bayou and Fannie Lou Hamer. Oh, no, you was always scared because white, I mean, white, white folks still, you know, were ruled and they still had a lot of wickedness in them, especially people in power. You know, yeah, absolutely. But I'm saying that it'd be better to be black here. You had more chance of being successful, which is why I would imagine per capita, you have fewer black people leave the Delta historically until recently. Uh, than you did other parts of Mississippi. Wow. And it's a, it is an article that was written up. I don't know if it was the Dallas newspaper or what. I don't care about it's no article. I'm telling you, it, it was I'm a scary bad, time to grow bad. up in Mississippi here. And maybe it wasn't a lot of things directly with clan activities and stuff. But just hearing about it, like we grew up hearing about Emmett Till. Now, I didn't know all the. the, the did, didn't know, but just hearing about it, it was enough to 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 put a lot of fear in you. Yeah. And hearing about hangings and things like that, yeah, and that that could happen to you. I mean, to me, that was that was but fearful. Here, though, but here in the Delta was a place, mommy, that historically has always been more successful black people and more black people were getting together. I mean, you um even his even the stories you all tell about Sacred Heart and stuff how. How you know you had white nuns and priests and stuff, even though they were foreigners, there was more cooperation. Who people who actually gave black people a chance, and and allowed, you know, I mean, it wasn't as suffocating as it was in other parts of the state or in other parts of the South. Even we were we were more prosperous here because you think about the the proof of it is that Greenwood in Tulsa was named Greenwood, and I didn't know that. I learned that it was named Greenwood after Greenwood, Mississippi. Really? Yes. Yeah, it was. It wasn't named Gulfport. It wasn't named Spitbucket or none of them other places. It was named Greenwood because black people were successful in the Delta and they wanted to remember, they wanted you to remember where they came from. Yeah. So I'm not saying it wasn't bad. It was bad all over. I mean, it was Malcolm, Malcolm X said all of America is Mississippi. Mm. You know, but um, but I think pound for pound, if you had now I ain't living in the 60s or the 50s or anything, but they say if you had to be black in Mississippi, you'd rather be black in the Delta than somewhere down south. And even we, when we integrated school for the first time in early 72 or whatever, I know I was going to the seventh grade, they said we didn't have no problem right, with riot and people, club and people and stuff fighting. Like that. We just went along. I you mean, know, let me 
No, it wasn't quite that easy because we we went before it actually segregated. Connie and I went to Solomon before it was yeah before it was actually desegregated, and it was it was rough. We were we were kicked. We were we were hit from behind. All kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. They kick us in our butts. Don't. When we got got out of that classroom, and then finally some of the girls felt bad because we were girls and they were watching us. Um, yeah, a few of them felt bad and said, "You know what? That's still a girl. Don't don't do that to the girls." And then we had some that actually stood up for us, but they were poor kids that did that. That stood up for us. Mm-hmm. But we had a really good principal. Mr. Dunaway, and he 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 was ready for integration. Yeah, when I went to public school, and he's like, he he had a conversation. I guess they they had a conversation with the white kids, and then he came in. You know, and we had a, a meeting with all of the black students. So anytime we would have real problems, um, Mr. Dunaway, um, we didn't have to convince him of what had happened. He knew what what was going on and what. What we said when we, you know, took anything to him that it was true. I mean, just hit, kicked, because the prints of their feet would be on the back of our clothes and things like that. So they knew we weren't making it up, and they had get they they had to assign us seats on the bus because the white students didn't want to. They wanted to sit in the front, but they didn't allow them to sit in the front. They made us sit. All of the black students sat in the front two seats. They were reserved for us. Oh, yeah, they were angry about that. We was being put over them when really folks were just trying to get equality or or trying not to be in the back of the bus where any, any number of ungodly things could have happened to you in the back of the bus. But some of the white students got off of the bus. They were Negroes. Right with us sitting in the front. I'm telling you, it was, it was, it was something now. I remember all of that. And they'd stick us with, you know, stick pins and all kinds of stuff. And sometimes the the black guys would stand up for us when the white boys would do stuff. And then they would end up fighting. And then a lot of them would jump on the black boys and, you know, so it would be all out fighting. Something like that could have turned into a, a dangerous situation in which death could have occurred in another part of Mississippi. That's all I'm saying. Black Good thing nobody used knives back then. Now, it would probably people would have used knives and guns. I mean, but you think about it. Emma Till, mommy, was killed for a lot less than that, just in another part of the state. Could you imagine a black, a white, a black boy standing up for some black girl's honor, um, you know, somewhere else? Can we ask you about your work with social justice through your farm in Oklahoma, but also with your national work and your work in the South in general, supporting black farmers and and poor farmers? Well, one of the things was in Oklahoma, you know, we did, we opened up the first farmer's market on an actual farm since the history of statehood. So I did a lot of work around getting farmers markets and what well, Chris and I did it together. 
Chris moved back home for almost a year, and him and I worked on Oklahoma, not Mississippi, because he considers his home to be here in Mississippi, and we both were born here. So Chris and I worked on getting the, the WIC extension of the Women, Infant, and Children program where they got uh, fresh vegetables. And so we worked with the state. I think we were one of the only non-governmental agency to be invited into the, the conversation uh, when they were starting out. We helped with surveys and putting surveys together for the program before it actually started. So we did did that and we were able to successfully, you know, with the with the state get that put in place. And so with the WIC, uh, they're able to get fresh vegetables at farmers markets. And then also through the SNAP, they're able to get extra uh, fruits and vegetables. Um, and so also with the senior WIC uh, program, we're working with that also. We were one of the first ones in eastern Oklahoma to work with the, a Native American tribe to get with their WIC program. And they, they uh, we did their WIC in their senior farmer's market. So we, we had farmers to come and sell their vegetables to them. We also started the first school garden on the east side of Oklahoma as well. And that's, I'm talking about Newsome Community Farms. That's one of the things that we did. Along with going out and promoting community gardens in the community and not just promoting them, we were getting seeds for them and for backyard gardeners, along with anyone that started a community garden. We did community garden trainings and school garden trainings. Those were some of the things that we, we put on uh, in Oklahoma. And we also worked, Chris and I worked to get the Healthy Corner Store initiative going in in Oklahoma. Our group, we did all of the research on it being developed in another area. At that time, I was on the Community Food Security Coalition board. And so they were working on the Healthy Corner Store nationally. nationally. Yeah, it was a national program. And so Philadelphia is where they did the, the first big training of it. And so we were in there. It was Chris and I and one other young lady. And we all three went to different sessions and brought that information back to a young man that was running for state legislative and state representative. So when he he did that, that was part of his platform was community food. And so when he got elected, he proposed a legislation to make the Healthy Corner Store part of you know, other state government's assistance to anyone that wanted to start a healthy corner store model. So it, uh, they they had tax incentives along with a $300,000 uh, loan that they could get, you know, government loan. So that was set up through that legislation. And, of course, after that, you know, it just kind of catapulted the the food justice movement, you know, and really talking about food justice in a way where everybody gets to eat, you know, good food. Before, it was just conversation about lack of good food in communities. But 
we were promoting that, that there are deeper reasons why people aren't able to, to get good food, you know, besides transportation. It's, it's set up. It's kind of set up that way. So that those were some of the things that our organization talked and promoted. And you're still a part of um, some national and regional efforts, even since you've moved back to Mississippi. What what are you still still involved with? I'm I'm still on the board of um, Food First out of Oakland, California, and so it it does not just national work, but international work as well. Um, we also work with countries in Africa and some other places. What is the role that you play in that as a board member? Well, as a board member, I was responsible for the National Food Day. I was a representative for Food First on that. And so my my role is to keep the conversation and keep um, information flowing on food justice, on food um, sovereignty, because it's very important that the food be food from the community making the choices on their food uh, and not outside forces or, or people that are not part of those communities making choices for those communities so that, that it remains the sovereignty of all of it remains in that community. Most communities are intelligent enough to choose healthy options that are part of their culture. So that's that's what we promote. What 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 do you hope for the Mississippi Delta in the future around food food sovereignty and food justice? And what do you hope for your time now that you're back here? Well, I hope to be able to impact this community in a way that that's sustainable. Like hoping to do some changes or letting people know that you know planting a seed and you own your own food source. You you own your own food. It, it, and not just stuff you buy from the store. It, it's like it's yours, you know. From the seed to the table, it's, it's your food. Like own it and not let any sources own it for you. It's just to tell people that and tell them and show them that you can do this. Anybody can do it. You can do it in, in tubs, learning to compost learning to go back to nature, eating from fruit trees, eating, you know, planting a tree. Um, and it may not come from, you know, from the older people. You may have to start, you know, with the youngest of them that are willing and open to learning. So that's kind of what I want to do while I'm here. That's beautiful. Uh, maybe as the last piece, could you describe, you mentioned that the farmer's market at your at your um farm in Oklahoma was the first in the state on farm Um, but could you paint a picture of what was on your farm what else was on your farm and also what you hope for your farm your land here well our farm also was a teaching farm so if you came there you didn't just uh, pick up vegetables you actually got to go in the field and and see them growing and also we had um, a setup where you could eat you can plant something right there at the table. We had another table where you could sit and plant. We also went out with them to pick and harvest. You know, if they didn't want what was at the table, we took them out to the field. We had some of the, the um, a small plot in front of the actual market. 
that had some of the things that were represented on the tables. And so we took, we'd take people there. And some of them would want to go in the big field because they couldn't believe that we grew all of that stuff. So we'd take them in the back field. And then we had architects without borders come out and they built a composting toilet, you know. So we had that as part of the, the farm experience if anyone needs to go to the restroom. Because, you know, when you bring little children, they always say, hey, you're in a restroom. But and we, we had that set up, too. So it was a fun day. We had chickens running around, kittens, you know, running around. It was just really nice, you know. We had a mini, miniature fruit orchard. So we showed people that they could do what they saw us doing. They, they could do that, too. So that was the purpose of the small plot, to show them that, you know, it was doable in their yard. And then uh, the larger one, if you had more land, here's a way to do, like, miniature fruit trees that don't have to be really, really tall. But, you know, so we did a little permaculture, um, showing them some different techniques to, uh, for pest control, natural pest control. So everything was done organically, you know not just planted organically, but just kind of in, in tune with the way nature does stuff. So that's that was our thing. And I'm hoping to replicate a little bit of that here on this farm, you know, as, as we progress along. Uh, starting with the bees? Yeah, we're starting with the bees here. Um, there's a lot of spraying in the Mississippi Delta. And so we were just blessed to find property that had a forest. So we're having to rethink how we traditionally farmed in Oklahoma. So we're going to use the forest as a canopy, though, to hopefully, I don't know, curtail some of the, the, the drift of the pesticides from the fields. Hopefully it'll, it'll catch it before it gets to the produce. We're doing different types of stuff, not you know, not the same traditional uh, produce. But we do have a sign from the state to show them that we have bees, and they're not supposed to spray anywhere near when they see those those signs up. Because you're surrounded by by fields of commodity crops. Yes, lots of soybeans and cotton and ethanol, corn, um, a lot of that. Well, do any, do any of you all want to end on any particular note? Anything else you want people to know? Mm-hmm. Signing off here, do you want to ask any final questions, say anything before we close? I want to just, I mean, you know, I, I hope all people can hold on to their culture, you know. And, I mean, you know, for us, you know, as, as African people in America, sons and daughters of the diaspora, the most important thing is you know, is is our deep belief in God and our deep belief that God is is always with us, and so that's how we live, that's how we survive. And you know, once we have that, we feel like uh, we have we have God and we have each other. Um, you know, there's really nothing we can do because we survived when we weren't supposed to survive. Um, we weren't supposed to survive, you know, in Mississippi. So just like you know, the broom is sacred to black people, and you know, the broom is sacred because uh, you know I heard them say that the all the different bristles, the many hundreds of bristles represent all of us, um, you know, and, and, and the stick which holds all those bristles together represents God, you know, which is keeping us together. So, you know, I think that that's, 
if anything I want people to know, we're hearing this and knowing that in Mississippi, you know, we don't have a whole lot. It is a poor state in the union, but it's also the most hospitable state and the warmest state in the union. Uh, you know, and I think that a lot of that is due to our deep belief um, in our creator and in each other, you know. I mean, that's who we are and we are at our best. So, yeah, I hope that's what people know about Mississippi. Yeah, and I, I think people forget that we're, we're always in a survival mode. I think now more than ever with all the climate changes and things that are going on, you better know how to how to take care of yourself, you know, food-wise. Because I really believe because of everything that's going on with pesticides and people using all types of um, genetic modified things, we're, we're in trouble. We've got to start growing our own food so that we can be healthy because you don't know the consequences of what all else is going on. Thanks, Princess. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mama D. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for sharing so much about your food culture and history. Well, thanks again for listening to Seeds and Their People. Uh, we wish everybody blessings, happy and safe winter season uh, as we go into the spring. And try not to get sick. Um, eat good garlic, eat a lot of greens, and hang out with nice, happy people. And as always, Seeds and Their People is sponsored by True Love Seeds. Please check us out at trueloveseeds.com where... Among hundreds of other varieties, you can find Chris's Mississippi Delta favorites, including brown speckled butter bean, Mississippi purple hull pea, and coming soon, the Mississippi silver crowder pea. Our next episode will focus on Malachia, with several interviews, including this one with friend and Palestinian chef Anand Zar. So, for me, in my work right now, and and I am retired, but I like to work a lot around food. So I'm always uh, like to say, this is a Palestinian dish, and this is a Palestinian dish, and this is a Palestinian dish, because we feel that basically the occupation, the Israeli occupation of our land is Palestine, is trying to make us disappear. So we try many different ways in saying, hey, we've always been there and we are alive. Please share our show with your friends and family and have a great week. Thanks, everybody. God bless. Do you remember in the 90s when cassette tapes and CDs had a hidden track at the end and it was really fun? Well, this is that really fun moment for you. We've decided to put another 10 minutes of our recordings here, specifically when we're sitting around the table with my father-in-law, Rufus Newsom, and our niece and nephews and cracking open moringa pods that he had grown for the first time, tasting the seeds, drinking water, um, to experience that, which you'll hear about, um, and even talking with the kids about what it means for a seed to be mature and when to harvest it and how to store it, and even talking about eating bacteria. So stay tuned.
listen to this conversation and here we go should we um do you feel up to looking inside the moringa pots why not why don't we do it okay. let's look inside the moringa pot <laughs> we have two moringa moringa trees that we grow here on the farm and of course uh the weather is so that we have to keep them inside the greenhouse or the barn during the winter just for survival's sake because it's an african plant it's an african plant and it really can't withstand withstand a lot of cold weather so what we do we keep it inside the barn for the year and that sustains it until the spring so we have a, how many pods do we have here one two three four five six we grew six pods on three trees two two trees seven, seven. Uh -huh. i'm about to say no i knew it was seven Seven. Yeah, two, seven. Three, four, five, seven. One, two, three, four, five. Oh, it's seven. A very sacred number. Oh, praise God. Okay, why don't we open and see what's inside? As I said, this meringue is from Africa. Um, Brother Jacob. Brother Jacob, a friend of ours in Ghana. And we uh, got those seeds from him, from his tree when we visited Africa. His landlady, so Brother Jacob, whose last name I can't recall right now, Brother Jacob's landlady made him cut down all those trees probably about a month after we left. Listen for the crackling. I was going to try to get Romel in there. The first seed. Oh, how wonderful they are. This seed, this part contained about 25 seeds and we're going to determine if these seeds are viable or not. That one, this plant is, that one had meat in it. This plant is used for almost everything. Every part mm -hmm. of the plant is used. Every part. The leaves, like the, the bark, mm -hmm. the seeds, the oil, the oil, everything is uh, at a roots. Yeah, and if you ever had the roots, they taste like horseradish. Um, if you eat this, you're going to get a little surprised. Okay. Oh, You're not yeah. going to like the taste of it, but this is like life. Sometimes you have to eat things that don't taste good in the beginning, but if you didn't eat them, you would not know the sweetness afterwards. So have a little bit so you can see what I'm talking about. Let them have one. They can bite off one. And now let me get you some water. Go ahead. Go ahead and swallow it. Remember, life is like that. Some stuff is going to be hard. You already had hard stuff in your nasty. life. You, oh, okay. There's nothing she nasty. You might not have got it. That's good. Did Jacob be here? Now give him some water. Drink one swan. I don't see what's strong. Just drink it. Drink, okay, drink the water. Oh. Drink the water. Taste and see. Have you drank it already? <laughs> it tastes weird. No, what does it taste like? Lou? What does it taste? Take it over. It was just regular water. Uh, it's sweet. It's sweet, right? It's Listen, real sweet. Sweet water. Don't drink all the water. <laughs> the water is not sweet. I did nothing to the water. Strive to it. It's the moringa. Anything you drink after that will taste oh. sweet. You know, moringa. Right? How do you taste? Did that's you taste it? It was sweet. Yeah, every time. Uh, you drink water after That's magic. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> so we're not going to eat many more mm -hmm. seeds and all. So one little seed can change the, the whole water. Mm -hmm. it, it can change the whole gallon of water. You keep drinking, keep drinking, and it keep getting sweeter and sweeter. You so it's not sugar? No. Sugar, none. In fact, just well, we just like learned, it. Daddy. What family do you think that, is in, that plant is in, Daddy? Potato? You think it's relatives? Sweet potato? Mm -hmm. Peas. Mm -hmm. Sweet potato? No, we peas. Now, it's That's interesting. You would think peas. We thought peas, too. Because it looks like it's in... No. Broccoli. Broccoli. 
So we're gonna keep every. We're gonna keep this, and uh, there's a seed. Oh, we can't keep them in there. They have to be planted. A baby is, can't stay in his mother's womb forever. He has to come out. And these bases, these are babies, and now they've completed the process of growth. So it's time to come out. So we're gonna use cotton as a protective layer for our seeds. Now these are smaller pots right here. I don't know what happened. They're, they're a little smaller than the rest. But we're going to crack these open. See how we crack those open like that? Press down on it. They're completely dry. They're dry. Take the lid out. They're dry. And what we're going to do as we said earlier, the Miranda plant, every part of the plant is useful. Uh-huh. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's beautiful. Those look in order to keep, in order to keep seeds, viable, they have to dry out. You have to, they have to dry out. And once they dry out, we store them up. So they can't be wet? No. Uh, if they get wet, they could mildew and, and die. Hmm. Look at that now. These are different than the rest. What's the difference? Hmm. It's lighter. Chris? Chris? Come take a look at these. Oh, those look young. Yeah, maybe they're not fully mature. Yeah, those don't look like they might be. They taste richer. And I don't get that taste. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like a peanut. Yeah. Hmm. A little bit. It is kind of a nutter. So we'll let that stay? Let these stay? Probably as ripe as they're going to get. Yeah, I think it's this one. They mm -hmm. still ripen they when they mm -hmm. juices flowing in the plant. Mm-hmm. You were talking about when they were, when I was sharing information with you, when they were growing, you said that to me, let them complete their stage. How to, how to, basically their pregnancy. Their pregnancy. Because in the pod here, that like just like you were saying, they're basically like in the womb. The womb. And uh -huh. they're pulling nutrients from the mother tree. And so the longer it, it can stay on the tree... The, the more nutrients they'll get. You know what nutrients are? Do you all know what nutrients are? Mm -hmm. The food from the ground comes up through the root system, goes up, and feed the uh, seeds, the pod, the babies. That's what they are. Just like when your mom was pregnant with you, the nutrients, she had to eat her nutrients. She had to eat them through her mouth. So she mm -hmm. had to make sure she had to take prenatal vitamins. She had to make sure she ate healthy Everything food. Everything she ate so was uh, you going straight to Exactly. So just like you want, you know, most births take nine months before birth, you know, in, in the womb. You want the plant to have its entire um, span in the pod. Cycle one year. It has to complete the, the entire span. So if you pick a pod before it's dried out, it's, it's still needed to get some more nutrients from the mother tree. So you wait till they're crispy on the tree. And this is what we did because the pod started started to crack open. Right. Yeah. Sometimes for one reason or another, you have to harvest them a little early, whether it's because it's about to rain on them and make uh -huh. them rot, and this or is a what bird we, is trying to eat them. And, and this is what we did. Them. We went on and harvested those just because because of that. So.
is the cotton supposed to make the um the the um what are they called again? Cotton with basically insulation. Insulation is what you have on clothes to keep your body you're insulated yeah. to keep you warm. Uh, yeah. And so basically, I put the cotton in there just to insulate, not to keep them warm because the weather's the weather wouldn't be a problem. Even the cool weather wouldn't be a problem in that because now with their they're storing seeds in refrigeration system where they're kept cool and they can't get too hot can they on can they get too no, no, again i don't know because it's a tropical seed mm-hmm. with a lot of seeds we grow you want to keep them like 40 to 50 to 60 degrees because it'll prolong their life they're they're alive in here they're breathing very slowly. you understand what he's saying do you hear what you're saying those seeds are alive they're alive Mm-hmm. That's why when you put this in the ground, it'll grow because it's living very slowly it's a living in here. Organism. So you just ate a living organism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what we and do. That's, that's how we survive. That's, what, that's good. No, no, no. Everything we eat was alive. Mm-hmm. And so this is just a plant. This is a seed from a plant, and that's how we survive. But it's also we save these aside for next year so we can plant and eat more next year. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, for example, everything you can't eat that um that can't um don't have waste or breathe or eat or use nutrients or anything like uh for instance a tablecloth it doesn't eat drink or have waste. But it's not a living organism. I'm sorry. These are this seed this uh, cotton seed is a living organism. The Miranda seed. It's a living organism. The, the Miranda leaves is not a living organism anymore. It's not alive. But it still has nutrients nutrients in here for us. But it, it's dead. We need to eat live bacteria. Live bacteria. But this one, I wouldn't, no, this is not live bacteria. But live bacteria is, for example, yogurt. That's live bacteria that you're eating. But also apples. Apple, that's good for your system. That's good for your body. And these, these greens here are you covered in really good bacteria. Some bacteria is not... Um, you have to have bacteria. You have to have good bacteria. Yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't live can't. without it. You can't. they help you digest. Exactly. And keep you from getting sick. They fight illness. Do you know your, the whole world is surrounded by all kinds of diseases right now? But because of the good bacteria in your stomach... That you're able to fight it off and you don't ever notice it. Okay, on that note, we're going to end it here. So, remember to go eat your good bacterias, your kimchi, your yogurts, your apple cores. Remember to go talk to your kids, your grandkids, your neighbors about saving seeds, about eating well, about working with the earth. And please check us out on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. And remember, keeping seeds is an act of true love for our ancestors and our collective future. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.